You can't always see bad weather coming, so it's essential that you're able to see through it when you drive. Michelin wiper blades with advanced technology hug your windshield like a Michelin tire hugs the road, channeling away water, snow, and ice so you can see clearly, drive confidently, and breathe easy. Michelin wiper performance, clearer than ever. Upgrade to Michelin premium wipers today at Walmart, Amazon, and other fine retailers. Hey friends, hello. Can I just say, it feels so good to be back doing these intros. I, I missed you all, I missed doing this, I missed social media. Yes, it was great to take time away. It was also necessary having a newborn, and we still do have a newborn technically. Um, our son is about, about, about a month old now, but taking the time away was needed. I'm just so glad to be back, I missed you all. And also I wanna say, Thank you for listening to this podcast. I understand and I know how saturated the podcast world is. I feel like every day in our DMs, someone recommends another podcast for me to listen to. I get it. So the fact that you would take time out of your day or or say no to other podcasts to say yes to ours, it means a lot. So thank you. It really does. This week's episode, I have Lisa Sharon Harper on the podcast. I love this interview. Honestly, I'm 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 honored to be able to interview so many great guests. And Lisa is another one who she wrote a book called Fortune. It is this this book that is intertwining her own um, family ancestry in America, along with the history of American racism. It's a really unique book in that way. I found it so. Um, emotional, so, so thought-provoking, so informative, and also just beautiful. So I brought her on to talk about it because I love talking to people who, who do this kind of work. So I hope that you enjoy this interview with Lisa. That being said, as always, friends, if you like the podcast, please consider giving us a rating. It helps us out so much. It helps us get more discovered and helps us get more recognized in the search engine optimization world and crazy complicated algorithms of Apple and of Spotify. And if you want to, we can always use financial support. We do nothing behind paywalls. All of our episodes are accessible to the community. Our Zoom groups that we offer to the community are totally free because we don't believe in charging people to get help as they untangle their faith. So we rely on the generosity of people to fund the work that we do. You can click on the link in our show notes to do that. And again, because we're officially a nonprofit, everything that you give is tax deductible. Speaking of nonprofits, today's sponsor of the podcast is Rocket Nonprofit. Now, I actually met Tim, not the Tim you're hearing from, a different Tim, through a friend of a friend who has the organization Rocket Nonprofit, whose goal is to help nonprofits gain their nonprofit status. That is a lot of nonprofits in one sentence, but we're going to roll with that. I'm not going to edit that out. Tim, honestly, friends, was so great to work with. If you are looking to maybe form a nonprofit or have your organization become a nonprofit, I cannot recommend Tim and the team enough. He was affordable. He was accessible. He made the process so easy. He explained how it works. He explained what we needed. I, I honestly, truthfully telling you, I could not say enough 
um, good things about him. He was wonderful to work with. So if that's you, if you're interested in maybe starting a nonprofit and have some questions, I recommend checking out rocketnonprofit.org, talking to Tim. Like I said, he's super accessible. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for him, and he was really affordable, which, again, when you're starting a nonprofit, that matters. So make sure you check them out. I will put a link in the show notes. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Lisa. Talk to you all later. Well, Lisa Sharon Harper, I have your book here, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family in the World and How to Repair It All. And I was telling you before we started recording that you've been um, um, highly requested to have on the show. So great mm-hmm. to have you. Thank you for making time to come on. It means a lot. Well, thank you so much for, you know, for having me truly. And I'm I'm just, uh, I, I, I don't I never know what to say when I hear People have actually requested. I'm like, okay, folks want this message? Let's do it. Let's actually, let's have a conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, It's interesting because, you know, the new evangelicals, we obviously are dealing in the world of, I use this term lightly these days, but deconstruction, some form of Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, even in my own process of rethinking, well, the way I phrase it is renegotiating my my evangelical heritage and my faith, I've realized that, um, that, Frankly, all roads lead back to white supremacy. I, I don't know how else to Hello. say that. I, I, I don't, you know, and, yes. and, and having to undo so much of this and decolonizing myself, and I'm still so early in that process, but, you know, dipping my toes into James Cone or reading Unsettling Truths, it's like, oh my goodness, there's so much here. And now I'm reading your book and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so almost so much more personal because you're connecting your story to the greater you know, um, history of how yes. black Americans have been really oppressed, um, in a white supremacist culture. Yeah. And I think that the thing that was most surprising to me was how very much the law actually does figure into it. You know, you have all of this pushback right now, um, especially in battleground States, but also really just throughout the Midwest and the South against CRT, right. Um, yes. you know, critical race theory. And the funny thing is, is it's not theory for those of us who live it. Mm. <laughs> it's not a theory. It's fact. It's history. Mm. And so one of the things that just that actually literally right now blows my mind yeah. is the reality that I didn't set out to write a book about CRT or even trying to prove CRT. But now as I look at it, I'm like, this book is proof of CRT. Like this mm. book actually really does. It shows you how the, the very simple theory, which is uh, the reality that the race is a legal and political construct and it impacts whole people groups. That's the theory. Like that really is the theory. It's pretty much the sum of it. And, and that white supremacy is intrinsic in the law and in um, the United States of America. Well, it really is. It goes back before the constitution, a hundred years before the constitution. Mm -hmm. Um, It was already embedded in our colonial laws and was never extracted ever. Mm-hmm. Um, even when they, when they, even when they made, you know, the 13th amendment, they put in that freaking loophole and, and then, and then the 14th amendment, um, citizenship, yep. But didn't have, didn't really have, um, enforcements of that, that lasted. We had the civil rights acts of this, um, 1860s, but then they pulled the troops out of the North, out of the South, and we were left vulnerable again. Um, and then, the, the 15th Amendment, which is the Voting Rights Amendment, 
Only men can do that. So even that is reserved for, you know, within a hierarchy of human belonging. So it took another, what, 60 years for us to actually get women included in, in, in that franchise and in the actual citizenship uh, move of voting. And now all of that is actually being threatened completely. So I think that, you know, when I was going through the generations and I was looking at how the generations of my family going back to 1662, 10 generations, how they interact, how they intersect with, with these different laws, it was clear to me that their lives were absolutely impacted and every generation after them was impacted by the laws that were passed at that time in their in their days. And I realized this is not just my story. I was really just starting to, I was just researching to know who I am. Mm. But I realized it's not just my story. It's America's story mm. of race. Mm. I can tell you and I are going to have a great conversation already if this is how we're kicking off the first five minutes. So well, <laughs> <laughs> why don't we back up just for a minute for the sake of the audience out there? They might not really know who you are. Um, why don't you kind of give us your background? And I know you do this. I, I just listened to your podcast uh, with, with with Pete Enns. And so I know that mm-hmm. this is kind of the podcast order. But for sake of our our conversation, audience, let, sure. let's set the tone. Who who are you? What is your background? And, and, then, and then what led you to write this book? Let's kind of give that that story yeah well i mean i mean honestly i cannot this is the funny thing about answering that question when when talking about fortune because fortune answers that question i mean the Mm. the reality is i am all of my ancestors who came before me i i I firmly and uh resolutely believe that and Mm. and stand on that they are literally in me my dna my body is made up of them like Mm. that doesn't that just freak you out when you think about that but it's really true. Hmm. I had that revelation when I was researching Fortune um, and her daughter. Actually, her daughter was indentured to the Fuchs family, Anne Fuchs. Um, and there's there are ways that you can spell that name. It has different variations. And I think she might have also been indentured to the um, F-O-W-F-O-U-W-K-E-S family Fuchs. Um, in addition to F-O-O-K-S, these are two different ways it was spelled throughout time. Mm. And the F-O-U-W-K-E-S family was actually with William the Conqueror in 1066. Like they were literally his right-hand man. And they were in the court of Henry VIII, like, (laughs) and Henry V. And I'm just like, "Um, okay, are you saying that? Because, oh, and by the way, their, their DNA is in me. Wow. Hello. So I realized- whoa, there's, there's like DNA matches with the Fuchs family. And this goes back like nine generations mm. um, or no, I'm sorry, eight generations. And so I had a hard time holding that. Like, how do you hold that? Because I know that they entered into my bloodstream by force. I know it was by rape. It had to be because it was a power relationship. Mm. She didn't have the ability. Sarah did not have the ability to say no. Mm. And so what, how do you hold the reality that they are in you? Well, my, my auntie said, she, she really said it best. You take it in, you grieve it, you take in the facts of it, and then you let it go. Mm. And that's, that's what I've done, but it's not only that generation. So I am also Leah who um, was born in 1836 in Camden, South Carolina, and was enslaved and, and was set free finally at the end of the civil war in 1865 at 29 years old and, you know, had 17 children in her lifetime, but five of them are nowhere to be found because they were before, before abolition. Um, And I am my mom who fought, you know, 
with SNCC and rebelled. She was in the rebellious in the rebellion um, generation with civil rights movement. And um, I am my grandmother who sang, you know, she sang with Count Basie. She was a, but she didn't like sing with him officially. She was a a waitress (laughs) Mm. at a jazz um, club in Philadelphia, South Philly, Philadelphia. And, um, and apparently she tells us that at one point she got to sing with Count Basie. I mean, that was probably like one of the highlights of her life, you know, and, you know, she tried to protect my mom and my, and my uncle from, uh, from the, the evils of segregation and, um, and, and racism that she experienced down in South Carolina. Um, I, no problem. (laughs) That's my dog. No worries. (laughs) Okay, she's with us. Her name is Babe. Hey, Babe. She, she always has her say. So <laughs> no worries. <laughs> she will always let you know she's here. So okay, she's going back up. Somebody just walked out of a room. So there you All go. All right. Um, See you, Babe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, and, and I am my father and my father's family that came from the Caribbean and experienced some of the most heinous slavery um, on the planet. And um, you know, I found out in the course of my research that. Uh, the average lifespan of enslaved people who were brought to St. Kitts, where my great, great grandfather was from, where he was enslaved, um, was one year. Mm. One wow. year. Wow. One. Mm. Um, and my ancestry, according to Ancestry.com, probably landed, was brought to Barbados first in 1750 from that was the first on that line, my dad, my dad's line, the first um, people to be brought to the Western world. And um, within one generation, they were all separated from each other and they were on every Island in the lesser Antilles. Our DNA was on every Island um, except for Haiti and, and um, I think Puerto Rico at that time. Hmm. And so, wow, really? Wow. Even going in all, I mean, really as far as like, you know, Guyana and Panama, we went up there at some point. So I think that, you know, you ask, who am I? Yeah. I am a compilation of all of those people and their legacies and their work and their struggle and their tears and their sweat and their blood. And who am I? I am an, I am an evangelical. Mm. And yet at the same time, I'm struggling with that, with that terminology. I came to my faith in Jesus in 1983 um, literally went, walked down, <laughs> walked down the aisle at a Sunday evening camp church meeting and, mm-hmm. you know, knelt at the altar with my friend, had no intention actually, by the way, of actually giving my life to Jesus in that moment. I had already, I thought I'd already given my life to Jesus <laughs> by doing singathons and walkathons for Jesus right of over course. the course of the next, over the last year. Right. But I started weeping. My friend started weeping. The old ladies surrounded us and mm-hmm. I got into the kingdom by proxy, I like yes. to say. <laughs> and so, you know, and it really was a movement from, 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 you know, life before Jesus and life after. I really, literally, um, I do see the movement from darkness to light, as in wandering to illumination, um, chaos to clarity. There really was a clarity that came in my life. And, but that same year, there was also the call to become a Republican because now that I'm a Christian, I have to become a Republican. And my mom, my mom dated Stokely Carmichael. Okay. So she, wow. she was absolutely like, who the hell are you? And what did you do with my child? Right. And so our relationship was broken for decades after that. Um, mm. But uh, I went on and ended up joining InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Mm-hmm. I, you know, in grad school, I went to grad school for playwriting, got my master's in playwriting. Wow. Um, 
uh, went from there um, into InterVarsity, was with InterVarsity for 10 years, so campus minister. Um, that's where I learned my love for the scripture, mm. and I would never give that away for anything because I've seen so much in scripture, even beyond what they taught me to see, especially as I have decolonized my eyes. Mm. Um, but then left InterVarsity in 2005 in order to understand how law impacts people groups. Um, so I went back and got my master's in human rights at Columbia University. And mm. um, from there started New York Faith and Justice, then Sojourners. And now I um, started Freedom Road in 2017. And we're a consulting group that specializes in shrinking the narrative gap. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote Fortune was to do exactly that, to shrink the gap between our narratives so that we don't have to retread the same ground we, we, we pushed for in the 1960s. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I actually live right outside of Philadelphia, New Jersey. I know in the book oh. you talk about Cape May. I've been there many times, been to the zoo many times. Where so do you live? Do you I know? Or do you know? Little, of course you I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I live in a small little river town called Delanco. Uh, right, I can oh. walk to the Delaware River and see Pennsylvania. That's how close I am. Oh, my gosh. So um, oh. I'm an East Coast guy myself. So um, I yeah. under, I'm, I'm not sure if you do. I would assume that you still have a love for it somewhere, you know, uh, and I, I oh, love it here. Totally. So. Well, um, so, I'm I'm in Philly, so you know oh, you're we're in neighbors. Philly? Mm-hmm. I live I live you're one block. Yes. <laughs> yes. I live one block from where my grandmother, my mother, my great grandmothers, where they all lived um, for 70 years. So I moved back from Washington, DC about a year ago, about a year and a half ago now, actually. Well, shoot. I mean, to put it in perspective for you, you you'll get this. I I'm one block from the river line that brings me to Philadelphia. Oh my gosh. Okay, that, that's wow, literally how brother. close I am. I know. We'll talk <laughs> offline about that because there's work yeah. to do. But but yes. okay, very, very um man, there's so many things I want to bring out of this conversation because sure. um I guess we maybe maybe we can start here. You know, I I don't I have not been given the eyes to see my family how you discovered your long lineage, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have aunts and uncles, couple cousins. That's about as far as I go. Um, wow. and, and so when I asked you, you know, who are you? What mm-hmm. I meant was like, give me like, how did you grow up? But I love how you, how right. you really were like, well, here's who I am. And the mm-hmm. DNA inside of me, right, mm-hmm. is the DNA for my ancestors, which mm-hmm. for someone like myself just blows categories. Like I've yes. never thought about that before. That, that even yes. though I don't know, I have ancestor DNA inside of me. And it makes yes. me want to almost kind of like explore that. Like, yeah, where did I come from? Yes. <laughs> you know, like it's very, it just, I, anyway, I, just wanted to, I, I wanted to pull that out of, of your statement because I think a lot of people listening are like, I've never thought about that question that way before. And mm-hmm. it, it was just very, I don't know, it was just kind of beautiful. You know, like, yeah, like there's a whole history inside of us that's tied to other people. And I think our hyper-individualism especially in, in in the States out of all the even Western countries really chops off that part of our own lineage. Right. So it's like, Oh, yes. I, as the individual am completely autonomous from everyone is- and everything. And what you're saying is like, well, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're not so much. Connected. Yeah. Not so much. Let me just say, I think the thing that is that what you just said is exactly true. Um, not just within the Western world, but within the white Western world, most mm. other, most other cultures, cultures in the world actually have very, very, um, clear and um, uh, and steady heritages of passing down their history orally and written in some cultures as well. But the ancestors mean everything um, to most people in the world. They don't mean very much to people in, in, 
white people in colonized nations and post-colonizing nations, because in order to become white, you had to renounce your, your heritage. You actually had to, you know, say, I'm not, I'm not, I have no allegiance to, um, to Ireland. I have no allegiance to Scotland. I have no allegiance to Lithuania. I have no allegiance to Germany or Poland. I am white. And, and it was in order to get the Homestead Act, you couldn't go up there and say, I'm Lithuanian, therefore I deserve to be in the home, I get a home in Homestead or land. No, you'd say, I'm white and therefore I deserve that. That's, that's how you got that. Or, or huh. you, maybe you didn't say it, but people looked at you and said, you're white, therefore you're going to get land. Um, Cherokees didn't get land. Mm. Black folk, very, very few black people got land mm. um, compared to what, what, um, how much was given out in the Homestead Act um, to people of European descent. And the GI Bill, same thing. It was a segregationist who wrote that bill. And so if you, if people perceived you as white, if the home, you know, FHA home loan person or the GI bill person perceived you as white, right. then you would get, you couldn't, if they perceived you as German, that wouldn't do anything. If they actually probably would, would be against you having come out of world war II. Right. Um, you know, so it's the, it's the becoming white that gave Europeans privilege and, but it was a bargain because what they did, it was a deal. They had to give up their ties to reality, their ties mm. to their actual story mm. in order to get those riches, in order to get that power, in order to get that quote privilege. Mm. And so when we talk about white privilege, that's what we're talking about. Huh. We're not talking about the fact that you might've grown up with a silver spoon in your mouth. We're talking about the reality that according to the law and according to legal practice, mm throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, if you were categorized as white and particularly white male, yep, that's me. then, then you, were, you were given the full privileges of humanity, of what God says on the first page of the Bible, that all humanity is created to exercise stewardship of the world, agency in the world that makes choices and in order to impact the world. White men fashioned this world the U.S. Yeah. and every place where they landed and colonized, as a place where only they would be recognized as fully human. Yeah, one. And, you know, oh, sorry, I'm, I didn't cut you off. Go ahead. That's <laughs> no, okay. Keep going. Just one. One last thought is that Please. it's it's this also happened the disconnection to our heritage and our language and our religions and our stories happened to people who of African descent as well, who were called black. We had no choice in that. We were forced to do that. And um, we have managed to redeem that word. I'm black and I'm proud. And I shout it out loud. Stokely Carmichael, um, uh, Kwame uh, Ture now, he, he changed his name, not now, but when he changed his name, he shouted black power. But that was a way to, to take power back um, from what had been taken from you because that moniker first was meant to de declare who was created to be ruled. Hmm. So it's actually a decolonizing act for hmm. both of us, white and black, people deemed white and black, to begin to do the research on our family stories hmm. and reconnect. Yeah, I will say, as I was reading your book, I'm like, 
I should spit in a tube and get some of this DNA going on. You know, like, like yes! I, I'm kind of curious now. Like, what is yeah. my background? I mean, I know I'm part Greek, yeah. part German, part Italian, but like, how does that oh. break down? Like, what's going on there, right? Yeah. And, and I, I found the book in particular, you really do a, a really good job of 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 really intertwining. Uh, your personal story with the greater narrative at large, and you really explain history in 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 really some fresh ways. You know, for me, I mean, I I read this uh, well last year. I read um Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi, and that was just like, oh my gosh, like wow, had just wow, like what um what just a a deep dive for me of like had no clue about so much of this. And as I'm yeah. reading your book and reading other books, um, you know, even I'm reading some Derek Bell, just kind of like trying to trying to get the what 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 is the the um you know window dimly lit, trying to get some clarity there, right? Yeah. And I'm like, wow, okay, things are starting to make a little more sense. I'm starting to pick up on things. And you talk yes. a lot about how, and this is what really shocked me, even though I shouldn't be shocked by it. Um, just reading it was shocking that 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 white or white people did a really effective job of stamping out the history um, and lineage of many black Americans, right? Yes. And I'm reading yes. this, and I'm just like, yeah, like you make you make a point in the book where 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 the histories of white people was kept immaculately, but yes. of of the black community was you know like you said this person might have five other children we will never know. So can you yes. talk about like what that was like re finding this out, being like, oh my gosh, I mean this is this is crazy. Yeah. You know, I knew it. I've known it for decades. Whenever, you know, whenever you ask my mom or whenever I ask my grandma, my grandma, can you tell us about your, you know, our ancestors? Yeah. They really wouldn't have a whole lot to say, except, you know, we could go back as far as Leah Ballard, which is the last enslaved woman in our family. Mm. And that we just knew her name. We didn't know really, I didn't know anything really about her. And I have to say, I, I learned more about her just in the last couple of decades, as I've been really doing this research. Mm. Um, but most most black families really can't even go back that far. Can't even name the last enslaved person in their family, and I and I knew that was the case, but I didn't know why. Then, in researching Fortune, you know, my actual yep. um, seven times great grandmother who goes back, she's the ninth generation on our family, um, or it goes back nine generations. Her mother and father were the first ones to be brought here. Um, one from Belfast, and the other one from Senegal. Probably, he was likely from southeastern Senegal where Mali, Senegal, and Guinea meet because his name was Sambo and that name means second son and it comes from that region. And so, hello, that's another thing I learned. I'm sorry, but I got to just say that yeah. Sambo is not a denigrating name. It's not mm -hmm. shameful. It's actually a name of honor, mm -hmm. um, but it was denigrated during the post-Reconstruction era at the same time when, when the KKK rose. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing this research and I realize I come across this law that is passed in the early 1700s that says that people of European descent, basically white folk, people deemed white, will have their births and deaths recorded. And this is in, in the colony of Maryland, right? But people who are black from Africa um, and, and others will not. And they don't give any rationale for it, except it's not worth it. Mm. It's not worth the trouble. So that, and that included, that doesn't just include people who were enslaved, it include people who were free. So my ancestors who were not enslaved, but were indentured and were free, all of them free by the mid 1700s and owning land in Maryland and in Virginia. Um, in fact, many, like one, I think my, my five times great grandfather, he had servants 
Um, and I think he might've even had one enslaved person himself. Um, mm. And so, but we don't really know if that could have been a family member he was trying to keep from being sold to somebody else. That's usually the case. Ah. But that's, they didn't have their births and deaths recorded, but others, white folk did because mm. that's what the churches did. Actually, the churches really more than anything kept those records. Mm. And so- you know, in order to find out things about African um, descendant people, you have to go then to the wills where they were passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to go to the sales records, possibly, you know, the property records. Even the census doesn't list our names. The census, going back to the very first census, 1790, and then even going all the way forward through the Civil War, Wow. The or it's up to 1860, the census does not list their names. It lists, if you were enslaved, it lists the gender, it lists the color, black or mulatto mm-hmm. or Indian. Mm-hmm. And then it lists the age. So you have to go in and, and the master's name. So you have to go in and see, okay, what, what's your last name? Your surname? Is it, does it match this master? And um, does, is there anybody on his slave schedule is what they call it. Um, on the slave schedule that matches the age of what your ancestor might've been around that time and coloring. Wow. And so it's just, it's maddening, but to see yeah. the law, like they passed a law that said, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to record. And that's why it's literally why centuries later, wow. they didn't have any records because somebody mm-hmm. passed that law in the early 1700s. Wow. Constant Contact's marketing tools and technology make it easier than ever to drive big results for your small business. From list growth and email to SMS and social media, it's all powered by advanced automation and AI capabilities that help you grow your business more effectively. Plus, we've got the reporting you need to see what's working and what's not, so you can adjust along the way. Constant Contact is the digital marketing solution you need to keep up, excel, and grow. Try it for free today at constantcontact.com. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I was just reading that just absolutely floored. And again, you know, the more I read stories and books like yours and others, the more I'm like, wow, you know, um, the I was taught American mythology, yeah. <laughs> not American yeah. history. And that becomes more and more evident the more I read. And I was homeschooled for nine years. Like I am a product of the mm. evangelical culture, wow. um, you know, through and through, um, wow. which actually makes me, you know, kind of wonder for you. you. You mentioned earlier that you are an evangelical, like you owned the title. Um, and I'm really curious to know, you know, um, how, I mean, I started this new evangelical thing a little over a year ago and there are days where I'm like, yeah, like we can, we can make the evangelical name better. We can reform it. I read books like, um, um, oh, I have it right here. What's it called? Um, discovering an evangelical heritage by Donald Dayton. I'm like, okay, Wesleyan tradition, abolitionist, there's hope. And then there are days where I'm like, give me the Molotov cocktail. I'm, I'll be the first one to throw it in the building. Like this thing has to burn to the ground. I don't want the name. I, and I am the epitome of what the system was designed for a, a white privileged man, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, give me some of your thoughts. You, you're an evangelical. Why? <laughs> I'll tell you. I mean, here's the thing. Yeah. Uh, this is something, and literally, I kind of had an aha last week. Hmm. Um, yes. And then, you know, I've been doing so much talking and I'm an extrovert, so it helps me to process, right? Yeah, same. So I had an aha last week where I realized, I think I might've been in conversation with someone 
who was telling me something that the Kristen Dumay said, you know, mm. she's awesome and just yeah. an incredible historian of church history. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing that I, I, okay, so my aha was this, that evangelicalism of the 20th century really has almost no relationship to evangelicalism of the 19th century. Now that is very different from what I have. I have been preaching for like the last two decades, Mm. really the last 15 years, I have been in that cohort of, of evangelicals that have been saying, we got to save us. We, We have forgotten who we are. You know, it is the evangelicals actually that, that did spearhead um, the second great awakening. And it is the second great awakening that was the vehicle through which abolition was won. I mean, abolition was moved forward in the United States. Um, Charles Finney, right. everybody has heard me speak. They'll hear me speak about this. Charles Finney developed the altar call yep. in the 1800s. Why? Because he said, we are, we are filthy. We are filthy in this nation because of slavery. And what he said, he called people to get clean because Jesus was coming. He was convinced Jesus was coming again and we got to get clean. Otherwise we are going to hell. And so at the altar, he had sign up sheets for the abolitionist movement. Like that's that, that is 19th century evangelicalism. That's the, the second great awakening. And the second great awakening was woke up, was woke by the black church, by the, by the invention of the black church. It was the first big walkout um, of um, Absalom Jones and, um, yeah. uh, and, and the, the folks in that, in that church, the Methodist church in Philadelphia that decided to walk out because they were not being given um, the, the ability to pray at the altar with everyone else. They said, this is wrong. This is not our faith. And so they walked out and they started their own churches. They started Mother Bethel, AME. They started um, St. Thomas, um, you know, the, the, the first black Episcopal church that actually my mom goes to and, and I go to when I, when I have a chance. And so, um, you know, there's, there, there's um, the, the DNA of evangelicalism in America actually traces itself has to go through the black church in order to trace its lineage, but not fundamentalists. That's right. Fundamentalists were a separate, completely separate sect in the, um, in the 19th century. They were really small little dinky little sect and they were not, they were, had no relationship to the abolitionist movement to the second great awakening even. But it's the fundamentalists, it's that soil that 20th century evangelicalism rises from. 20th century evangelicalism is, uh, it, it rises from the soil of fundamentalism. And they called themselves evangelicals, but they are not. They did not come from that space. And it's that soil, it's those people, it's the fundamentalists that actually are at the heart now of the movement for white Christian nationalism in America. So, you know, I think that's why we look around now and we're going, who are these fools? Like they're not, this is not the people that I was hanging with even 20 years ago in the middle of this evangelical, you know, world. They are, they've kind of taken this thing over and it's not who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I have to take even back something I just said. It is actually in some ways who we were, who we were hanging with because I was in intervarsity, intervarsity is an evangelical 20th century evangelical movement. Yep. And I, it's funny, um, when I wrote my very first book, Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat, I did a 
like a bunch of interviews, like 40 interviews with different um, faith leaders across the country. Wow. One of them was with um, Dr. Steve Hayner, former president of Inter- of InterVarsity. And I knew him because I was in InterVarsity and, you know, he knew me. So I gave him a call and I said, you know, Dr. Hayner, um, you know, so tell me, tell me about this evangelical movement. And I, we, you know, did the interview, but he shocked me. He said, he said, you know, he, he in passing, he said, InterVarsity was a fundamentalist movement. And I said, what? Mm-hmm. I said, because that's the thing we were always told in university. Mm-hmm. We are not, a, we're not fundamentalists. We are evangelical. We value, we value education. We va- and these are places in the middle of universities, right? But the reality is, is that he said, and it's true, that InterVarsity, Christianity Today, Campus Crusade for Christ, Billy Graham Crusade, all of those flagship white evangelical movements that rose out of the 1940s and thirties in the United States, mostly the forties. They all came out of the rise of fundamentalism and an attempt to correct fundamentalism. Actually, they were trying to then legitimate it by then calling it evangelical around that time. And so that's what he described to me. And I was like shocked, Mm. but now, now that I've seen how these evangelical movements have dealt with public, with the question of how do we live together in the world? It's vastly different from the way that the 19th century and 18th century evangelicals dealt with that same question. It's either um, to bury your head in the sand as the fundamentalists did after the monkey trials, or it is to, you know, race, you know, um, charge the barricades um, as the fundamentalists uh, did um, with the monkey trials <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, before the, before they were embarrassed, you know? Oh, so geez. it's wow. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm having some revelations here and, and, um, <clears throat> and I think, I think we all actually need to understand that as we're thinking about how, the current actions of evangelicals in the public square have actually, um, I hate to say it, but killed the integrity of, of the church at large in America. Absolutely. <laughs> you're going to get me ranting now, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. And so much of what you said, and um, you know, people often ask me, so why why do you keep the evangelical name? I'm like, well, frankly, uh, I'm just too stubborn. <laughs> like, no, I think that's it. No with me nationalists, too. you can't have that. Yeah. You can't have that name. Give it back. Um, yeah. Because, like you said, you look at at the 18th, 19th century. Like, it is there. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking right now of the Wesleyan movement, but I mean, man, I mean, they, those guys were radicals. Yes. I mean, they were egalitarian through and yes. through. They ordained the first women um, yes. in, in in America. Um, one mm. woman who got married to her husband said, I'm not taking your last name. Uh, I'm not your property. I'm like, amen, you know? Yes. And it was because of their faith. Yes. A hundred percent. The women's suffrage movement, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, an evangelical. And guess what she does? She writes the women's Bible. Like that's one of her ways of protesting patriarchy is to write the Bible through the lens of women. What? In the 1800s. This whole suffrage movement was actually powered first by black women in yeah. Philadelphia mm-hmm. and then taken over by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and friends in the, in the 1840s. But in the 1830s, it was black women who powered that movement and started it. They funded it. They seeded it. 
Um, and then we're pushed out of it actually um, by white women. So that's a whole other thing. That's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Which we can definitely do. I have no problem going there at some point. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely, um, you're, you're, oh, is that babe again? Hi, babe. <laughs> It's totally fun. No, no, it's totally cool. Um, Everything you said is accurate. And the reality is people don't know that. You know, people think, oh, this is how it's always been. And frankly, I get why, right? Because the evangelical movement is ultimately at this point a complete disaster. There's just no way around it. You know, the fundamentalist resurgence, the SBC uh, conservative resurgence take over. I mean, the SBC, Mm -hmm. I've been told, used to ordain women. I mean, holy smokes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Wait, look, look at this. The SBC actually multiple times affirmed the Roe v. Wade rule. I know. Affirmed it. <laughs> this is in my book. This is in, in two books, actually, in both Left, Right, and Christ and in my last book, Fortune, right, in the one that just came out. Right. And I mean, so when I got, I'll tell you what happened. So I'm, I'm writing Fortune and I start right in 1680 two with Maudlin McGee coming over from Belfast right. and then 1686 with Sambo coming from Senegal. And I end with the inauguration day in 2021. Right. So that's a long way. It's a long journey. And, but the thing that blew my mind was how each of those chapters really does build to the chapter on how my life intersects with what's happening in the public square yeah. and how I found my faith the very same year that the major, the moral majority was born. Goodness. It was like that blows my mind when I think about it. Like, wow. Yeah. So I couldn't help but write about that and write about that. The way that they leveraged abortion in order to, to win the war to protect pure white space. Totally. That's actually. Hello, private doing. schools. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. The right? race schools were created in order to create pure white space. Yes. And they fought the same people who created the moral majority and the religious right. Those people, before they did that in 1983, they were fighting for pure white space throughout the entire 1970s. And and they lost in the Supreme Court and and they realized they could not fight this this fight any longer um, with with race as their banner because of Brown versus the Board of Education. hundred percent because they had just lost their Supreme Court bid because of Brown versus the Board of Education. So what did they do? They decided we have to we have to, to shift the calculus of the court. We have to bring the weight of the court over to the conservative side. Why did they say that? Because never before in the history of the Supreme Court has there ever been a majority conservative ruling that has protected people of color, Mm. ever, Mm. never. So in order for them to win back Mm. pure white space, they would have to overturn Brown v. Board. And in order to do that, they needed a conservative court. Now, look at our court right now. Trump did it. Trump overturned the court. Trump actually gave them what they had been fighting for for 40 years. Mm. And look what is right now on the chopping block. Affirmative action will likely go down this year. Roe v. Wade's going to go down, but they're not stopping there. They're going to they're, they're gonna take out affirmative action. And eventually, and it's not going to take long, they will take down Brown versus the Board of Education. Because Brett Kavanaugh has not voiced... Um, uh, allegiance to Brown versus um, the Board of Education, nor has nor has um, uh, the Amy. I can't remember her last name now. 
Amy, the 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 last the last justice who was, yes, uh, yes. Who was brought on. So Amy, yeah, I'm blanking on it too now. <laughs> but yes. Oh my goodness. I can look at that. Uh, I have it right here. Yeah. So nor has the last justice that that um was was affirmed to the court and um, brought onto the court. So you have a court that is very, very much set to win the culture war. But you know what that culture war, the culture war was only an extension of the civil war. That's what it was. It was, it was a continuation of the civil war, the war that has marched through 500 years of American history, Mm. the war to establish, entrench and protect white male power. Yeah. Um, Amy Coney Barrett was her name. And, um, Yes. I mean, you know, people don't realize that the moral majority was really started over school segregation. Uh, You know, Jerry Falwell has that famous sermon where he preaches against it and tells his Mm -hmm. congregation that if they only knew, if if the Supreme Court knew God's will, they would keep the races separate. He Mm -hmm. founded Liberty University, right? The moral majority, Paul Ryrick. I mean, there's a whole legacy here. And I often tell people that, that, that Trump is not, is not an anomaly. He is the fruit of what of what of the seeds that have been sown for decades upon yes. decades, along with talk radio, which I grew up in that world. I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. I mean, that is those are totally my spaces that I um I grew up listening to. And that world is so, like you said, they are are they're getting better and better at being slick about it, right? Um, but ultimately who does it benefit? It benefits white men ultimately, uh, yeah. and sometimes white women, but mostly white men is who it really tends to benefit. Yeah. And it is interesting because I used to think that, oh, well, uh, I used to think things like, oh, how could anyone support Jim Crow laws? Like that is just crazy. Mm-hmm. But as I get older, I'm like, oh, history is happening again. Yeah. Right. And, and the yeah. things that, 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 that seems so clear to me back then are much mm-hmm. more all of a sudden muddied because of how it's communicated, because of how it's talked about, but the same mm-hmm. results keep happening. Can you speak on any, I just don't know all the details. The, there's been a major fight against voting rights for the oh, black gosh, community. Yes. Can, can you give us like some insight on what's actually happening? Cause I, I'm getting bits and pieces, but I don't have the full picture yet. I, I'm sure you have a lot to say on it. Well, absolutely. Well, what is it? What does it mean to exercise dominion in the world? It means to be able to exercise agency, hmm. to to make decisions that impact your world. In a democracy, the the most fundamental way to exercise dominion is through your vote. Hmm. That's one of the reasons why the vote is so important, especially in a democracy. It gives all of us the ability to shape the world. Well, um, for five hundred years, it's been the assumption of white power, that white people will actually be the determining factor to shape the world. And it was, it was pure, pure white men in the beginning, all the way through the, the um, uh, civil war. And then with the passage of 15th amendment, okay, black men got the franchise, but only for nine years before they pulled the troops out of the South. And then, you know, then you had the lynchings and Jim Crow and you had the um, the literacy tests and all the things that, that prevented us from being able to vote for another 90 years. Yeah. Um, but, and then women got the vote, but only white women got the vote, right? So what happens, what happens when you have everybody voting? What happens is you have, you have, not only do you have true democracy, but you do not have an assumption of white male rule. And with the dem- dem- demographics shifting right now, 
um, within 23 years, people of European descent will just absolutely not be in the majority in America. Mm. There'll be no clear ethnic majority, mm. racial majority, um, which means that we're going to have to find a new way of living together in the world. But for a people group that has for 500 years assumed rulership on this land right. and for 3000 years has gone places in the world and Im imagined that they should be the ones ruling here because mm. they're the only ones who are truly human for 3000 years mm. since Plato and Aristotle mm. for that people, this demographic shift is feels like an ex an existential threat. It's a threat to not only your power, but your identity because of what we were talking about in the very beginning, whiteness, mm. Y'all chose to be white. Y'all said, I am willing to give up my heritage, my culture, my language, my connection to my family's story, my connection to my family in order to be white. But in 23 years, that whiteness is going to mean a whole lot less. You've invested in something that has depreciating value, in other words. Mm -hmm. So what they are doing right now the voting rights, the voting voter suppression and voter subversion um, through through trying to jerry-rig the system and have electors actually appoint the president and appoint House representatives and things um, that the people did not vote for mm. because of a loophole in the law, mm. that these are all tactics that are being employed right now through state houses across the country in order to keep power for a growing minority. Mm. So there's no way for us to repair what race broke in the world without fixing voter rights, voting rights, mm. without establishing voting rights, not as an act that needs to be voted on and approved every 25 years or 20 years, but rather as law, as, as constitutional law. We, it is our constitutional right already, but somehow, somehow, even the Supreme Court is allowing that, that conservative Supreme Court mm -hmm. is allowing that constitutional right to be uh, mowed over mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and ignored. Mm -hmm in order to gain white male power. Mm. And I think it's really important that we, that we, that we are very clear. It's not, it's actually not white power. It's white male power. Mm. That really has to be clear because, and this also comes from something that I found um, in my research. When you go back to the very first race laws on American soil um, in the colonies, the second state, the second colony, the colony where fortune lived, that colony started its race laws based on a problem they perceived on the ground, which is how all law begins. And that problem was the problem of white women, mostly Irish or Ulster Scott, indentured servants who were working right alongside enslaved black men, falling in love with them and marrying them and having children by enslaved black men. And that, that presented a twofold problem to the white male uh, General Assembly of Maryland. It said, why are these white women choosing black men and not us, right? So it hurt, it hurt, it bruised the white male ego. 
And second, it presented a problem with the racial construct. What are these mixed race kids? What's their status? Are they going to be enslaved as their fathers are? Or are they going to be um, indentured as their mothers are and set free? So they solved this problem in this way. White women, please listen. White men, please listen. You solve this problem by saying, any white woman who marries an enslaved black man and has children by that man shall herself become enslaved to her husband's master until her husband's death. And her children shall be enslaved in perpetuity. That was the very first race law in the second colony, the colony of Maryland. The, the first race law ever happened just two years before that. And it was, they did another kind of jerry-rigging thing that you can read about in the book. But what that taught me was that white women, if they are not, if they do not protect the honor, the, the perceived honor, if they do not bow to the white man, then they may as well be black. They may as well be a slave. Mm. And y'all tried. In fact, you did enslave your own women. Mm. You enslaved them. And that's the value of white women if they are not loyal. So you said earlier, you know, some white women get to benefit from whiteness. Yes, they do. But only those, only those who protect white patriarchy. If you do not protect white patriarchy, you may as well be a slave. And now I'm thinking about how that same kind of language is used in fundamentalist circles, but now they use the Bible to justify it, right? Mm. Women need to submit. It's the established order, um, you know, and I'm like, hmm, again, like I'm until you until you know, you don't know. And all of a sudden when you're using this language and like, you know, kind of this this really you're really bringing this idea of so clear of how, yes, you can benefit if you submit to our authority. I'm like, yes. I've heard that before. Haven't you though? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, in the 1980s and 90s. You know? yes. And yes. today, I mean, you know, I'm on I'm on the wrong side of Twitter sometimes. I just see these tweets from men like Doug Wilson. I'm not sure if you know who he is. And I'm just like, oh my God, like how is this person seen as a leader in these reformed Theobro types? And people mm-hmm. applaud it. It's like this is blatantly misogynistic. It's not, it's not even yeah. the illusion of, of soft complementarianism it's just pure you know brutal misogyny um but it's the same result right and it seems like that's what what is fascinating to me is that i i've noticed that 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 this conversation adapts and evolves to get the same result whether we're using the bible or we're using the law or we're using this political talking point or that talking point all mm-hmm. roads lead to the same result. White yes. men stay in power and other people do not, or they have to submit to that rule. That is the option. It's very, very true. Exactly right, Tim. I mean, I think that the thing that blows my mind hmm. um, is as you go through the book and you'll you'll read like, you know, 10 generations, there are laws, the laws that created the construct of race are passed throughout time, over the course of time. Hmm. And every single one of them ends up being passed to benefit the the bank accounts of yeah. white men. That's yes. the bottom line. Yes. It yes. is about economics, but economics is intrinsically tied to the construct of race in America. 
That is exactly right. I mean, Derek Bell makes that point in one, in one yes. of his books that, you know, yes, Brown v. Board was passed when it benefited white people. Ultimately, yes. you know, the foundation wasn't, oh, this is an injustice. We have to fix it. The benefit was, wait, this economically is not making sense anymore or whatever else it is. Right. And I think that's what's so interesting is like. The more I'm reading and trying to learn and trying to, and trying to, like I said earlier, get this picture of what's happening when I hear CRT come up, right? Critical race mm-hmm. theory, which is mm-hmm. a legitimate legal discussion. And then Christopher Rufo takes it and completely twists it into the GOP talking point that it is, right? This boogeyman. Uh, I, I think Nathan Cartagena puts it as it's like it's it, it, it's a cultural CRT. It, it, it's this boogeyman idea, right? That yeah. isn't even you know genuine critical race theory. What um, it really and- means when they say CRT, what they mean is black. Yeah. So that's really what they mean. That's all they really mean when they say CRT yeah. is they mean black yeah. and black equals evil in their mind. In, in the worldview of people of, of white supremacists, black equals evil. So we don't teach evil to our children. So you have to ban CRT. Race equals yeah. black. Race doesn't equal Asian. Race, does, race doesn't equal. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that there are not iterations of racism that go against um, right. Asian people. There are. Yes. The logics of white supremacy hit all of us differently. But in yeah. the minds of of those white fundamentalists and particularly Christian white nationalists, um, but what they're what they're looking for is they're they're looking for anything that sniffs of blackness. Yes, that is. I, I I agree. Um, I totally agree with you. And what I what I'm frustrated with, not frustrated with, but well, yes. So two thoughts on this, and I'll get your get your your feedback on it. Number one, um, it 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 is so blatantly obvious and frustrating to see how the white evangelical church is in lockstep with how uh, the political talking points of of the right wing media you know, is right. CRT comes out or CRT gets blown up to be this thing. All of a sudden pastors like Mark Driscoll are talking about the evil of critical race theory. Right. You're like, what Mark, like, honestly, you have to be dumb. And I I don't dehumanize. I try not to, I really do. But like, Mark, you have to be like willfully ignorant here to think that all of a sudden, you know, this new term is the greatest threat to the church. Like it's manufactured, but these same people will not say a peep about the insurrection. They won't say a peep about the, about the obsession with Donald Trump and and the bl- I mean, not just like not soft blatant mm-hmm. lies blatant mm-hmm. misogyny blatant antichrist behavior right yeah. so that gets me aggravated but also there's this other thing I've realized too where many like the the average white evangelical who attends church um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, they don't know their own history. They don't know that colorblindness was created by white supremacy culture in South Carolina to keep people, you know, in this way. So I just yeah. wanted to bring that up just as, as kind of some food for thought for the audience, because once you don't know your, once you learn your history, you know, it's, it changes the game. I think that, you know, I mean, here's the thing. We are right now at a moment, an inflection point in American history. We're living history right now. Um, historical decisions will be made about how we will live together as a nation yeah. in the next one year. Yeah. This year, in November, we will make a choice about how we will live. And why do I say November? It's not a, it's not a presidential election. No, but state houses across the country are going to have a chance to go either into the hands of white nationalists, into the hands of people um, who are trying to preserve white male power, or into the hands of people who actually are trying, trying to create a new way of living together in the world, a way that acknowledges the reality of the diversification of our nation and the reality of the image of God in all of us. 
that God, God yeah. ordained that all of us would have the ability to speak into shaping our world. And that does not have to be a threat to people of European descent. Absolutely. It can, it can actually be an invitation, an invitation to people of European descent to come down off of the scaffoldings that you have erected for yourselves. Come down from this hierarchy of human belonging that you have crafted for yourselves through the, through the institution of laws and moral mores and, and systems and structures that have protected and entrenched your exclusive ability to exercise dominion in the world and thus elevate yourselves to the only true humans. We do not have to live this way, but I'll tell you what, if you choose to bury your head or if you choose to try to protect that, then we will run off the cliff of fascism in the United States of America and the church will have no witness, none. The same as the church had no witness at the end of World War II because the church stood by and let it happen. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to compare, you know, anything. What I'm saying is we're doing it. We are walking that direction. The church is walking us in that direction, either through action or inaction. But we need to move. We need to have action that pushes back and pushes us, pushes us toward that nation that, that is the beloved community, the one that actually reaches out and grabs hands and says, we can do this together in a new way of actually discerning and deciding together how we will live together in the world. And so repair is going to require us to tell some truth. Repair is going to require us to give reparation to the only people group in American history who have never received reparation for the oppression that we endured, people mm. of African descent. Mm. And it's going to require on our part, on the part of those who are oppressed, to do some forgiving of the things that can never be repaired and never be restored. Because until we do that, we will be tied, demanding $95 from actually $100 from folks who only have five Mm. to give. We need to release it, release them from that need to give us the other $95 and then turn to God and say, ante up. Mm. Cause aren't you the one with cattle on a thousand Hills? Mm. Aren't you the one who moves mountains? And you know what? God delights to do it. God can do it. God has moved mountains before mm. our ancestors, our testimony to that. That'll preach. <laughs> That's great. So good. The book is Fortune, How Race Broke My Family in the World and How to Repair It by Lisa Sharon Harper. You are a delight. We have so much more to talk about at a different conversation. I know you got to jump off. So let's keep in touch. Uh, we're, we're neighbors practically, so we are due yes. to talk more. But thank you for your work and, and keep in touch. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You Bye-bye. Too.